Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you decided to join us tonight. And I would like to know where you're from. So if you are watching us on YouTube, which is right now, it's the only place you can watch us. So if you are able to make a comment in the comments on the right side of the YouTube channel, please let me know uh, where you're from. I'd love to, love to know that. And if you're our first responder, let us know that as well and, and what you do as a first responder. Uh, I'd love to uh, hear your comments and also want to let you know that later in the program tonight, after we, after we have a conversation with our guests, we're going to have it open for, for Q&A. So if you have questions for our guests, please put them in the comments. I can see them right here on my screen and we will bring them to our guests so that we can answer your questions as they come. So, but I want to introduce our guest. We have tonight, we have Lori Hood, Dr. Lori Hood is a leading expert in trauma, PTSD, neuroscience, and human potential. And we are really honored to have Dr. Hood on the show tonight. And I'm going to bring her on. Dr. Hood, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about you. What, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a researcher. Um, I I have a body of work called High Stakes Performance that I've been working on for a few, several decades, actually. I am a master certified coach, um, certified by the International Coaching Federation, ICF, and I coach for the United States Air Force and Space Force. I'm in their leadership development program, so I coach uh, their top leadership, and that's an absolute honor. Mm. Um, I also have a private practice. I... Um, I have some proprietary work. I work with first responders. I work with um, veterans, but all kind of in the emergency responders, military veteran um, area for the most part. Mm -hmm. So you haven't always been working with first responders. What's some of your background? You were you were in mm -hmm. dance. You have a history of dance and some other I mean, interesting things that, that you told me before the show. <laughs> sure. So um, I was a a tomboy. I was very, very outdoorsy. And, um, I always loved horses. I got a horse when I was about seven years old. And then I started showing, um, when I was an equestrian, uh, tell really seriously tell us about 18 or 19. And then I also danced. Um, I've been a professional dancer off and on, and my dance has really moved into my scholarship and into the way that I work with trauma, dance and movement and music. That's an interesting combination, and we can get into that a little bit later. I want to know, though, you did a dissertation, from what I understand, about trauma and first responders. What what was your interest in getting involved in the first responder community? Well, I, I first, I, I and my children were rescued by first responders. So um, I was married to an abuser. My former husband was abusive, and um, the Louisa County Sheriff's Department helped us get out and get away from him, actually took him out. So that was my first, my first real um, introduction to first responders was that they were there for us and, and they checked on us for the time we were still in that house. Um, and then I, I had the trauma knowledge and I was really working in, in a, you know, my research and, and things like that. And um, it was the, the hurricane season where we had, I think it was Harvey and it was just, I think there was just a ton of hurricanes. And I started understanding that a lot of fire service folks are mandated to go to big disasters and then they go back home and do their really traumatic jobs. <laughs> and so I started thinking that I had some, I had some knowledge and some things that I could do to, to help them. And I, and I wanted to help. Mm. You know, I have I have a neighbor here in the community that I live who is on a very well-known search and rescue team. And I think he's retired now, but he mm -hmm. was deployed to many of those scenes. He was in Haiti after the, the the earthquake 10 years ago and some other places around the world. And I'm and I always thought, I wonder how that impacts these people, these men and women. They go to these disaster zones and it's just pandemonium is just crazy huge large-scale disasters i can't imagine the trauma that must the impact that must have on these first responders well yeah and, and so i mean our 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 brains are wired to um to handle trauma but in in small doses or in daily sort of you know i mean we it, trauma actually was adaptive a long time ago and it now it's become maladaptive but 
you know, our brain isn't wired to run toward danger over and over and over and over again. And that's basically what, you know, emergency responders do is they run toward danger when everybody else is running away. And I, I believe that they're, they're almost born into it. It's who they are. I mean, they, they, they love their jobs, but for their physical body and their, their brain and body, um, it's really hard on them. And so, and then, you know, you're talking about being mandated to go to a, like a Haiti disaster and then come back and fight fires or do your EMS work or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, trauma is cumulative. So if you have a traumatic incident and you don't have the time or space or ability to process that trauma and begin to recover before the next one, then you're just piling trauma upon trauma, trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And so when those things pile up, what is a typical response from, from a first responder or a person who is dealing with these things and maybe they haven't dealt with those issues? What happens? Well, everybody, everyone's, you know, an individual. So how you respond to trauma and I respond to trauma would be, would be, would be likely different. Right. Um, I think that, uh, there's a lot of stigma and, um, uh, you know, are you, do you mean response in terms of how the trauma builds up in them or the response, how they try to handle it? Both. I, I guess both. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So trauma is cumulative. I think it, it builds up unless um, there is a, a, a place to let it out and to work through it. Um, I also think that uh, there's a, there's a, been a, a historical stigma. It's still there. Maybe we're breaking a little bit, but uh, what, what I think happens is that Historically, emergency responders, if they have trauma symptoms or post-trauma symptoms, and they do ask for help, by and large, um, they they are stigmatized as being sort of you know damaged goods, and 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 often they they lose their job. I mean, there's lots of times when um, they they are just fired. So it's they, and they're, they're fired because to- they're viewed as a liability to the agency or to their work. Um, I think so. I mean, I think I think that's been the case. I think that um, once someone is diagnosed and they go for help, I think the 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 way it has been anyway is that that people see them as damaged goods and they're not they're not going to have their back anymore. They're not going to be able to be their partner. They're not going to be able to perform or whatever. And, you know, in some ways, the opposite is the case, because there are people who are not looking, asking for help, who are extremely stressed out and maybe traumatized, who are just trying to like white knuckle it and bear it. And, you know, a lot of people turn to alcohol or medication or, you know, or drug use to try to, to try to quell the symptoms, to keep, keep going and keep going. And then eventually there's, it's just too much mm-hmm. because it, it truly is too much. I mean, we're, we're, we're asking way too much for emergency responders, I believe, and not giving them the support, the money for treatment, the money for prevention. I mean, my work is, is preventative. It's mm-hmm. my, my work is, is to prevent, mitigate, and then recover from trauma. So no one else is really talking about how do we prevent this? I mean, that's the goal as far as I'm concerned is let's prevent it if we can. So that's the big question then. So how do we prevent this? Well, um, I can't tell you every single thing because some of my stuff is proprietary. Sure, of course. <laughs> um, but but um, I do believe that um, at the at the bottom level, I teach first responders about their brain and body and the way that it that it works, the way that it handles stress or doesn't handle stress, handles trauma, doesn't handle trauma, so that they can start to understand that there are certain things that are just hardwired that we have to kind of work around or work with or hack, right? And then there are some things that are are more malleable that you can train yourself to do. And and so those are the kinds of things that I think um, need to happen. I think that uh, if if first responders, if we could start at the academy level and teach them, like I just said, the fundamentals of what their brain and body do, but also um, tips and techniques and and hands-on concrete things that they can do to bring themselves back down when they are stressed out, the sooner you, we know this in the research, the sooner you come down once you've been triggered or, or upset or activated, the sooner you come down, the less likely you are to have post-trauma symptoms or even burnout. So, you know, kind of keeping people doing things on a regular basis to access and to process um, trauma other than talking about it. So that's another thing that we now know that 
if people are in, or, or people talk about it when they're in an activated state. So say they say you just come, you're a fire service person, you've just come back from a bad call, and you're heading back to the station, and you know someone is there who's trying to help you, and they've heard you've had a bad call, and they say, let's talk about it. And you say, I don't want to talk about it. And they finally convince you to talk about it. If you're still really jacked up with cortisol, you know, epinephrine and all the, the fight flight hormones, and you start to recall in detail what just happened, you're likely going to re-traumatize your brain. So talking about it isn't the end all be all, especially when someone is still very activated in their, in their, um, their physical body, right? So in, in your research, when you first started doing your research, let's go back to that moment. What surprised you when you started unpacking this? Um, wow, that's a great question. Lots of things. So let me explain what my, my, my study was first. Sure. So I, I had been working with first responders for a lot of years just in my private practice. So I was having one-on-one. I was coaching them. I was I was hearing their stories. I was um, you know, shocked at what they what they go through and how they just keep going and going and going. And um, one of the things that I heard a couple of times is that you know someone's always studying us. We're we're like guinea pigs. And I thought, what? That doesn't feel good, right? And I said, so you know, I looked into the literature about who was trying to understand what their experience was, not how they handled stress, not whether they got PTSD, not whether they, you know, would would benefit from this test or that test or whatever, right? But just understand them. And I, I couldn't find any studies at that time where people were just saying, hey, what's your experience? And so that's what I did. I just said, tell me what your experience is of being a first responder. And then I actually muted my phone so I could just listen to them talk. And of course, I, you know, I had IRB approval and I could record and transcribe and all that stuff. But, but I would just ask them that question. And then I would ask the next question, which was, can you tell me more about that? And I just listened. And I, and I, when I went into it, I thought, you know, they're not going to talk to me. They're just going to clam up. They're not going to, they really talked. And, and the more I was quiet, the more they would talk. And so, um, that was what I did. And I was really surprised to hear to hear some of the things that I heard. Um, one of the most interesting things was that after the, the interviews were over and I was done gathering data, I had several contact me and say, do you want to know like the real stuff? And I was like, well, yeah, I kind of wanted to know the real stuff before, but of course I do. Right. And I kind of couldn't publish that. But I did listen. And um, um, they told me some really interesting things. I. I would say if, if there's one thing that that I would guess, and no one's told me this, but I've, I've worked with res emergency responders for a while now. If there's one thing that I would guess that we could do as citizens. There's a bunch of things, but this is one. It would just to be to be steady. Like if they're going to be a hero, then let them be a hero. If they're going to be the bad guy, then, you know, but 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 the citizenry goes up and down with policy and politics and the times. And I feel like a lot of emergency responders get sort of jerked back and forth. They're either loved or they're hated. Mm -hmm. There's no real in between for them. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that that's got to be rough. And that probably adds to the the trauma and the and the stress, right? Sure. I yeah. mean, especially in the past year or two when it's just been crazy, you know, coming out of COVID and then you had the social unrest and we don't have to get into all the politics of that. But it's, I think that that adds so much more stress, especially to law enforcement. Sure. Well, and, and, you know, fire service as well. So I know uh, personally several fire service and law enforcement um, folks who had to have, you know, like park their, their vehicles away and um, have, you know, police watch out for them because they were getting threats, death threats. Yeah. So um, it's, it's too bad. Yeah. It's crazy. I know, I have a friend who's who's a sheriff's deputy and you know he parks his 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 cruiser back out of sight you know by his house so that it's mm -hmm. not visible from from the main road so which is sad that you have to it do is that. sad i mean there there are reasons i mean i i will be the first to say that if a if a police officer is using excessive force i think they should be prosecuted and i think you know they sh they should be dealt with um but it, it is too bad that there are police officers and fire service uh, personnel, lots of them who really do just want to do their jobs and, yeah. and they get they get targeted as well. Yeah. Do you think that some of the bad players that we've seen on the news over the past few years, perhaps 
some of their behavior has come out of some of the traumas that they have faced that they haven't dealt with. So you didn't want to get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try not to. <laughs> yeah, that's a really that's a really big question. Um, you know, I I I do believe that law enforcement. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. Let me just try to get it at it this way. When I when there is a uh, an officer involved shooting that is is prominent on the news, I watch it exactly twice. I watch it the first time. And, and then I don't watch it again, but I watch it the first time and I try to watch it just as a human being to just try to take in the stimuli and understand what my body and brain are doing. And, and it's very informative because I, I have a lot of reaction, right? Mm -hmm. Then I take a break. And then the next time, usually the next day, if, if I can wait a day, I will watch it as a traumatologist. Mm -hmm. And I will say that I believe that there are um, law enforcement personnel, fire service as well, I'm sure, some who are traumatized and still trying to work. And that trauma gets triggered. And I've, I've seen it on certain videos when they, you, you can tell they're not, they're not really thinking with the blood up, you know, the blood's gone to their right and the back part of their brain because they're in fight flight. Mm -hmm. So I think that is dangerous. Um, but I don't, I would never say that just because someone had trauma, that's an excuse for them to be able to to brutalize somebody or or step outside the bounds of what they're they're supposed to be doing and handling and working with citizens. Yeah, and I wasn't saying that to give them the license to do that. I was just saying perhaps right. it's it's a it, it's a uh, a symptom of something that they haven't dealt with, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, yeah. and, yes, and and but I mean, if you if we if we keep going with trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Then we look at you know the the the, the history of African Americans. There's trauma there. You know there's there. So I mean, it. I do see the world through the lens of trauma because I that's what I do. But I also think that it's time to start to face that that you know we we have multiple layers of traumas for some folks, um, mm -hmm. and um, you know I think we have to address it as a country. Sure. Absolutely. So that, this, this, and not everything's trauma. I mean, right. that's the other thing is it's like, oh, you know, everybody's traumatized now. It's like, well, no, you're, you can say that you've been traumatized if you are diagnosed formally by a licensed mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think the word PTSD gets thrown around a lot. You hear it, you know, news stories and well, I had PTSD. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the protocol for that. There's a specific mm -hmm. thing for, to be diagnosed with the D right. Right. Um, and so, right. right. So, describe for the, for the viewer, describe what that is and how that process works a little bit. Just kind of cliff so, notes for it. Yeah. So, so we're calling. I mean, I'm calling it PTSI now. So, PTSD um, is post traumatic stress disorder, and a lot of folks are really get really hung up on the disorder part of it, understandably so. And we now have some brain imaging studies that uh, that suggest that it's actually an injury that it looks a lot like um, a blood clot or a cancerous lesion or a stroke. So, um, so that's one thing. Um, are you, so, you know, people who, so, and I am diagnosed, I had, I was diagnosed first in 2008 and then again, 2010. So I'll tell you from my perspective. Um, to me, it was that my nervous system had been heightened and everything was sort of turned up, right? And so I was hypervigilant. Um, I was really jumpy. I was, I worried a lot. Um, I couldn't eat. I, I lost a ton of weight. Um, I felt like I couldn't trust anybody. I was always looking over my shoulder. And, and so, you know, everybody, everybody's symptoms are, they're, they're unique, right? But there are some things that, that we look for and, and that is hypervigilance, um, night terrors, flashbacks, you know, nightmares, an inability to sleep gets disrupted terribly. Often appetite gets disrupted. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, it can, it's on a continuum. So then it can go to an extreme, you know, suicidal ideation or um, completed suicide. So um, it's, it's really difficult. It's if, if, if you haven't been through it um, it's really difficult. I, I have a friend of mine who calls it um, when he's feeling symptoms, he calls it the demons are on the playground. And it's just, 
it's just difficult. So the other thing too, is that you, you know, for me, it was sort of a two part deal. Like I, I first really worked on my mind and I got to the point where my mind, I could calm my mind. I could stay present. I could not, you know, sort of just go into instinct if something scared me, but my physical body was a different story. There's still every once in a while, every, I think it's been about six or eight months now, but every once in a while, my body will start to like, feel like it's been uh, shocked or, or something's gone on. And I have no idea what triggered it, but that's, that's often the unconscious mind will receive a threat signal that you can't consciously, you know, perceive. So it was, for me, it was first my, I got my mind under control, my thoughts under control. And then it, it took a lot longer to get my physical responses to calm down. So what are some of those things that you do and perhaps even today to help mitigate some of the effects of that trauma? For myself or for my, well, it's the same. It's, it's the same. So, well, the first thing I do is I teach a breathing exercise. It's simply breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And what that does is it stimulates something called the vagus nerve, which runs up the inside of your spine. And that in turn stimulates something called the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for fight flight. Um, and the parasympathetic nervous system is, is responsible for calming the system, your body down. And so if you're, if you're feeling uptight, if you're feeling anxious, um, simply breathing like that can be a really great step. Um, the other thing that I teach that I think is a little bit different is I do teach movement. The, the reason why I started down that road is that if you, if you think about our, the way our brains are wired and the way um, we've survived and, um, and you know, how our brains have helped us with, with uh, responding to trauma. So if a, if a, a long time ago, if a cave bear came out of the woods, my, my eyes, my ears, you know, maybe my nose would um, take in the stimuli, right? I would know there was a bear and that bear was probably dangerous to me. And so I would receive a threat signal in the old part of my brain. And then automatically the parasympathetic nervous system would, would automatically dump the chemicals into my body to get me prepared to fight the bear or flee the bear. Right. So, um, and what would happen is I would either fight the bear and I would either get away or I would die or I'd flee the bear and, and hopefully get away. But then if I survived, my, my body wouldn't stay jacked up like that, that my, my adrenal glands wouldn't keep pumping out cortisol and epinephrine over and over again because the bear was gone, right? I got away. And so what, what happened would be that, that you kind of come down into homeostasis, then your body would come back down to a, a medium norm, right? And not be up in fight flight anymore. And then, you know, likely the next time you saw a K-bear would be at least a few days, I would think, or had that kind of reaction to something. So we're hardwired and our bodies are made to see something scary once in a while, react like crazy, fight, flight, go away, you know, and then come down to normal. And in our world, um, there's 24 hour shopping, there's lights on all the time, noise, that's hard enough, let alone being a first responder who is up all night or, you know, constantly going out on calls on, on their shifts or so, so we're not made to be in fight flight all the time. And as emergency responders, their jobs demand that they are pretty much in fight flight on, you know, off and on all the time, right? There's no real break from it. So, so that's what happens. Yeah. I've seen that, you know, I've spent some time, you know, on a shift with, uh, with a firefighting crew and, and, uh, you know, and, and they prepare for, you know, for, for sleep and, but they, they know that at any moment those tones could go off and they're, you know, out the door and there've been some really amazing, uh, new technology that's been developed for, for kind of easing them back awake. Uh, I was at a firehouse down in Virginia recently where they have this panel on the wall that they can, if they're on the engine they can turn off all the other alarms except mm -hmm. for their their vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so they only get alarmed if their vehicle gets called. And well, so that then makes it, sense. I'm surprised that wasn't already in place. I know, right? <laughs> oh, geez. See? You know, <laughs> we just we just keep asking more of them and right. giving them a break. That one seemed and, pretty logical. <laughs> and so they can program that. And so I guess if they're like a battalion chief and they have to respond to, you know, more things and they right. probably get more, but uh, but they yeah. also have a system of you know of of lights that gradually come up 
and you know tones that gradually increase in sound so it doesn't have that jolt of you know Darn. yeah you know yeah you're waking it causes up probably a bunch of adrenaline in it right <laughs> <laughs> let's just traumatize them before they get out the door and right just, uh, <laughs> yeah no that's nice I actually yeah. have an app that I've developed that um, is made to um, when, you know, once a scene is clear and you're heading back to the station or, you know, we're going back to the department for your law enforcement, that you can look at your phone and it takes about, it takes less than 30 seconds. And in the, the pilot, the average heart rate came down about 11 seconds, 11 point something seconds in under 30 seconds. Mm. So remember I said that the research has shown us that if you can bring yourself down from being in fight flight quicker, mm -hmm. um, you have less chance of PTS symptoms and also, you know, eventually burnout. Right. So right. this helps people do that. They, they can bring themselves down as they're driving back or as soon as they get back to the, the fire station or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my goal is to see if we can, again, prevent it. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier that you, in your own circumstance, as well as your clients, you engage movement. What, mm -hmm. what, how does that work? How does that uh, prevent or how does that uh, mitigate some of these, these issues? Well, so one of the things that I do is um, remember the bear story, right? So mm -hmm. you, you, you see the bear, you're, you go into fight flight, and then you fight or flee. So you move, right? Mm -hmm. And then your body comes down. So I think when I was first diagnosed, a lot of people were saying like, um, you know, meditate, meditate. And I was so, so, you know, just sort of all over the place that I, there's no way I was going to sit down and like clear my mind. You know, I was like, are you kidding me? I, I can't do that. I can't even stop. I mean, I'm, I better run and do dishes and keep going or I'm going to just lose my mind. So, um, so when I started realizing about how our bodies behave, once they're triggered into some sort of a fight flight situation, it made sense that the movement is there. So a lot of times I teach people, it's, I have a saying, it's called jumping jacks are your friend. And it's just a silly little thing that I say because people will remember it, right? So if you have, I call it a hit, say something happens and your brain gets that threat signal, you get that jolt of adrenaline. One of the best things you can do is to move, right? So you're replicating fight or you're replicating the flee part, right? The fight or flight part. So you move, which gets the chemicals moving around, and then you can do the breathing exercise. So that's one way that I use movement, but I actually, it's much more complex than that. I have something that I've developed called somatic rescripting. And do we have like, do we have time? Do you sure. have like a good five? Okay. So it's a little bit more, um, it's a little longer to, to describe. Mm -hmm. So um, I um, was, have been a dancer. And when I lived in Hawaii, I got my bachelor's and master's degrees in Hawaii. And I studied at a halau there, which is a, a, a Hawaiian um, uh, teacher school where you can learn the ancient form of hula. And I did. And, um, and then I was studying, I was researching, I was working with first responders and, and military and, and former military. And um, I was also processing my own trauma. And I realized that I was um, doing a lot of dancing um, and listening to music. And I had a, the time um, I was married and, and when I had a farm in Virginia and we had horses. And so I would go down and then I would just scoop the stalls and, and, you know, work through my emotions. And it was about eight months later. And I realized that my, my playlists, my music playlists roughly aligned with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. I had some very sort of sad and, you know, just really grieving kind of music. I had some really angry music. I had lots of angry music for a long time. And, uh, and then I had some just more, more light kind of acceptance music. And so that fascinated me. And then what I did was I started studying more ancient forms of dance. So I studied ancient belly dance. I studied some ancient African dances and some ancient indigenous American people's dances. And I noticed a common theme. And that common theme was that um, when, when they wanted to be in an empowered position, they would go into a, like a squatted position, not full squat, just a, a semi squat. And that felt, um, it felt like your hips felt freer and it felt easier to kind of get into your, your, you know, feeling like your body had power. So at this point, I'm going to give you my definition of trauma because it relates to what I'm talking about. So trauma is the sensory and emotional experience of being helpless to protect oneself or one's loved ones. 
So trauma happens when we're overwhelmed or when we feel helpless or we can't protect ourselves. We're being prevented from protecting our children or our loved ones or ourselves. And so um, by, by doing the opposite with this movement work that I've developed, you put your body in an empowered position and it's called somatic rescripting. Soma is Greek for body, which means soma, soma means body. So it's body work and it's rescripting because I'm actually trying to rescript or put a new end on, on a memory. So the way that you do it, and I would suggest, actually, I would just request that you don't do it by yourself. If you have a therapist and you want to try it, you can. Um, but basically, you you choose some music that has a good beat to it. The human brain is hardwired to respond to a beat. And you just move back and forth. People, sometimes I have them stand in a door. I just shift their weight from foot to foot. But you get in this sort of squatted position, this empowered position, and you let your body feel that power. And remember, that's the opposite of feeling helpless. And what you do is you keep moving to the beat of the music in whatever way that's comfortable for you. And you start to remember that memory. And instead of the end being where you're, you're, you feel helpless or overwhelmed, and that's where the trauma occurred, you rewrite the end in your mind. You rewrite or rescript the end of the memory. And if and you keep your body in this empowered position so that your body is telling your brain, hey, I'm powerful, I'm not helpless. And your brain is telling your body, hey, we 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 ended this, this memory differently and now it's gonna be like this. And you do it over and over. It's certainly not a magic bullet. It's, it's a little difficult to do. It's really easy to lose the empowered position and it takes some practice, but I've had really great results with it. And, and I believe firmly that when we work like that with our body, when we're not using medication and we're not using alcohol or drugs or something to numb our feelings, we're actually processing and recovering from the trauma. So mm. that's that's the big spiel. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I'm glad you didn't say that we're going to teach firefighters to to do to, to belly dance. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. And, and I think, I think we kind of lose the audience at that point. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's really true. Yes, it is true. I know I've, I've had people say, you are not going to get firefighters to dance. I'm like, that's, that's not my goal. <laughs> that's not my goal. But I will tell you, I do have a few Air Force leaders who are dancing mm. in the privacy of their own home. doing sure, some. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we talked before, before we came on air, that we talked that there's, uh, there's also, you know, a lot of people doing yoga. And I've, yeah. I've seen it in myself with, with some fire uh, crews out in California who work for Cal Fire, and uh, it, it's really, really cool to see how that impacts their life and the response that they have, and th that there's movement again, and it's it's also learning to breathe, learning to control your breath, and I think that's that's vital for for healthy recovery, for healthy for healthy living. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So we have uh, Clark Sampson. I'm going to put this on the screen. This is kind of a funny comment. Okay. He says, "How do we know that some don't don't belly dance already?" <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, have, I have to uh, be about confidentiality, so I can't really tell you. That. Sorry, but <laughs> right. Point. Well, we have another question. Actually, uh, so Nick Greco, uh, he posted this question. Said, "You know." I'm fine. Yeah. That, that, so many people say, "I'm fine," when we ask them how they're doing. So yes. you know, how do we help break that reluctance to seek out treatment? Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's, it's so true. It's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, um, and I've worked with like battalion chiefs. I've worked with, with leaders, you know, how do you check on your folks? I ask them and they're going to say they're fine every single time, even if they're not right. So um, I guess my suggestion, it, I, I would encourage leadership to actually just say, you know, let's let's step outside so we're not at work anymore. I mean, let's 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 just talk, right? Um, if you're a peer, I think it's more it's it's more difficult, but that's it's such a tough call. I mean, I can't really recommend that anybody sort of put somebody on the spot. And I also think that if people aren't ready to talk, it's it's not great to push. But I find that just being with people, you know, just saying, hey, you know. If you want to talk, that's great. If not, can I just sit here with you? Um, I do think trying to help usually is not a great thing unless unless you think someone is suicidal. If you think that someone is has suicidal ideation, then you absolutely have to you know go for help immediately. I mean, obviously, emergency responders know that, but it's it's 
that's that place. And it really is difficult um, to get from I'm fine to to talking enough to be able to say, hey, you know, you could go for some help. And I think it depends on what kind of help is, is, is available. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that came out of my study is that emergency responders absolutely need 100% confidentiality. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be talking to somebody who's going to go to their leaders and say, you know, hey, he's having a rough time. Mm-hmm. I just, they need confidentiality. And, and sometimes they have it and sometimes they don't. Um, so I guess, I mean, not knowing the relationship, I wouldn't know exactly how to answer that. But, um, you know, I, I just think being with somebody and and paying attention and 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 letting them know. I mean, I, I think it would be okay to let them know. Hey, I it, it seems like you're struggling. Are you really okay? You know, I think that would be okay too, based on your you know based on your relationship with them. Do you think as a leader of a first responder agency, you know, if you're command staff, to create that environment that it's okay to talk about these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because- I mean, I think I think it's it's incumbent upon leaders to. Um, to, to do just that. They need to get past the I'm fine and say, Hey, you know what? You're not fine. And I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and be with you. And, and I want you to, you know, get to a point where you can talk to me or tell me what's going on. I mean, it, it really is up to leadership. They have to make the, you know, it trickles down, right? You know, mm-hmm. things trickle down from leadership. And if leaders are open and they're, they're really trying to make it safe for for their folks to come forward and say, "I need I need something." Right? Um, that that's what's going to work. And where is the balance then in a leader who maybe talks too much and, and maybe even creates an environment that triggers others? You know, because of the stories that he or she is telling. You know, from his or her own oh. trauma. Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would recommend telling stories. I mean, I just, I mean, they, they live it too. I mean, it's not like, it's, you know, it's not going to, they live this stuff every single day. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I do think I will say this, I, and I'm going to make myself really unpopular, I'm sure, but it's, it's, it's what I believe. I do believe that some of the peer support, uh, work could use some tweaking. And by that, I mean, I, I do know that some peers who are supporting their their peers are really having some struggles. And um, you know, my proposal is that they ha- that the, the peers who are doing the peer counseling um, have their own group, have a, have somebody come in, you know, do a virtual session with someone like me, because you you can't just hold that stuff. So. Mm-hmm. The other thing too is if if the peer is not healed enough, then they can trigger the the person they're trying to support too. So I know it's a relatively new thing, and I think it's it's great in so many ways. I just feel like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of tweaking that needs to be done to make it even more healthy for both the peer who's you know mentoring and the peer who's receiving. I think there's some really good peer support training programs out there that people can get into. That I think would be be very very helpful for you know, people who are really wanting to kind of really beef up their peer support uh, in in their agency. Um, so there's a question that floated through my head, and it just kept on floating. So so Ernest says this. So you know, may we. You perhaps might be a better motivational interviewing type to ask the question, um, you know, how are you doing? Is that right. something that is? Okay, so that's, a, that's a great idea, Ernest. Yeah. So instead of a closed in, you know, yeah. Um, you could say, you know, tell me about your shift. You could, I mean, yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's brilliant, actually. I mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. There was a, a a few weeks ago I was uh, I was watching a program and there was a comment made about this very question and I need to see if I can pull it back up. Uh, and I and it was a brilliant response to this answer to them to this question as to you know the, the I'm fine response. It was right. uh, and the question was so that it it, it wasn't like a yes or no, or I'm fine. You, you couldn't respond that way. It was really brilliant. And I don't remember who said it. And so I got to see if I can find it. And if I find that, I'll put it in the, in the show notes for this, okay. uh, for this YouTube video. And so we'll have it there later on. Um, so in, 
in your work and in, you know, say someone is dealing with stuff, at what point should someone reach out to you or to, to a therapist? You know, it's a, it's, it's a tough call. I, I would say, I, th I think the way that we, we do it is that basically if something is um, affecting your, your ability to do your job, to be in your, you know, primary relationships, to be a mother, to be a father, to be a spouse, you know, a friend, then that's when we normally say you, you need to be looking for help. So if it's interfering with your ability to do your life, right? Any one of those things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yep. That's kind of the place. Yeah. And I think the other one, I'm sorry, I got an itch. The other mm -hmm. one that is really interesting or, or important is that, um, when you, when you feel like you're starting to do things to mitigate it. So if you're drinking, if you're, if you can't sleep and you're, you know, you're, you're having two glasses of wine to get to sleep or you're, you know, con, you know, you're taking the medicine in it, you know, those, that's another place to where you really need to be looking for some help. And, and it's out there. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we, we do have lots of things and we're, we're learning more all the time. So, yeah, I think either, you know, time to look for help would be when it's interfering with your life. And then also when you, um, when you are trying to fix it yourself in, in ways that aren't really healthy. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how, a lack of sleep impacts trauma. Well, sleep is really complex. I mean, and I'm not a sleep specialist, but I can tell you that sleep is super complex and that we need all stages of it and we need enough of it and we need it regularly and we need to recover. And so um, when you don't have that, when you're working shift works like, like firefighters do um, when you're working, you know, all night and then backing up to day shift and there's just lots of data on this stuff. It literally shortens your life. And so, you know, one of the things that I was talking about earlier about the breathing exercise, you can do that breathing exercise just like three or four times a day, just take a minute or two, and you will reset your body and give your body that break from being sort of on all the time. We have, um, there's a, there's research into something called telomeres that basically the shorter your telomeres are, the shorter your life expectancy the longer your telomeres are, the longer your life expectancy. So if you could look at some of the techniques that I've talked about, like movement, you know, letting your, letting your body move through and express your anger or fear, or, you know, whatever the outcome of that call was, if you can do it working out as well with music, it's, it's, there's lots of ways to do it. But then every time you let your body process some of that and move it through rather than get stuck, you give it your telomeres a chance to grow, right? So that's the good news is you can grow them back. If they're short, you can actually do mindfulness practices and, and work your, your trauma out in a way that um, processes it and so that your telomeres can regrow. Hmm. Wow, there, there's so many variables to this issue, right? And there's so many things that can impact uh, a first responder and really can impact any of us. But I think first responders are much more susceptible to, you know, experiencing trauma. They're, they're, they're very much more likely to experience trauma on a pretty significant level. I mean, just today I was watching a news story of the plane crash in California that crashed into that neighborhood and destroyed a UPS truck and, you know, you know killed the driver and, and killed a pilot of the plane and, and this house burst into flame. And there's just flames everywhere and people, you know, pulling people out of the house. And it was like, my first thought was how are those citizens now who are going into that house, pulling that person out, you yeah. know, they're going to have some, they're going to have some trauma that they're dealing with. Likely. Very yeah. likely. Very likely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you think about first responders, they're doing that all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. You know, the other aspect of, of first responders that I think people don't know and um, is that in lots of ways, they're, they're, they're kind of social geniuses in that, you know, if you think about it, say you have a motor vehicle accident and say a woman is hurt and her child is in the back of the car or whatever, and you get everybody out of the car and you take care of the woman and she's on the way to the hospital and, or, you know, or, or getting, you know, getting taken care of by the paramedics or the EMS or whatever, 
And then you go from being the, the police officer or the firefighter or whoever, whatever your job is, doing the really high stress, high stakes stuff that you do to save people's lives. And then you got to turn and talk to a kid about their mommy. And I've seen it. And it's just incredible that these folks can go from being, you know, really just doing their job and killing it to a little kid and get down their knee and, you know, really talk and mommy's going to be okay. And we're going to go with her and, you know, don't, you're not going to stay here. And it's just that, that kind of um, movement from one, um, one part of their job to the other part of their job takes an enormous amount of mental and, and psychic fortitude to be able to hold it together, you know, and, and deal with all these moving things. And, and they never know what they're going to come up on. Right. So they never know. And then to turn to like a kid or a spouse or, you know, someone who's hurting and really have the compassion that, that that's a big switch. That's a big change. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it takes a lot to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that to, to be a first responder and especially these days, you know, is, is so much more challenging. And I was speaking to someone earlier today and they were just saying how that the trauma that first responders face today compared to what they faced even 20 years ago, you know, can be so much more, uh, acute. I mean, it, it can be so much more you know, deadly or, 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 or damaging, um, because of the, you know, now we have it on social media. You can see it again, you know, on the news, you know, you, you have, you know, a dozen people with their phone out there filming this stuff. And, and so it's, it's, it, it can, it can, you know, hit them, you know, they're there on the scene. Now they're reliving it again because someone posted it on Facebook or, or, or on some social media site. And so you know, how did those kind of things play a role into that cumulative Okay. They just add up. I mean, they just add up. I don't even have, I, I have one, I have a TV in my house. It was here when I moved in. I've never hooked it up. I don't watch the news. I don't watch TV. I just don't, unless I have to for a case, right? Um, I will, but um, it's, it's really devastating. I mean, it's really difficult. So every time you live that through again and again and again, um, it does, it does have an effect. And the other thing that I think is important to know is that if you think about firefighters, firefighters used to just fight fires. Like that's mm-hmm. all they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I think there are a few stations in the, in the country still that they, they just fight fires, but, but the amount, and this is the thing that I, I found out in my dissertation, the amount of information and courses and training and blah, 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 that firefighters have to know. And then they have like their specialties too. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's not just about fighting. I mean, what do you, who do you call if, if you don't know who to call? If something's gone wrong and you don't know, you call the fire department because right. they're always going to come and figure it out. Right. <laughs> but, but that's also a lot. That's, and then, then they're mandated to go to, you know, hurricanes and floods and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a highly demanding job, you know, yeah. it really is. Well, I know for all of you who are watching, who are first responders, I want to say a huge thank you for what you do and for serving your community and making your community a better place to live because of, your service there. I think that's, that's so important. And I, and I want to encourage you to take care of yourself and to, to make you a priority so that you can be uh, the best you for the job that, that you're given. Um, so Dr. Hood, what if, if there were a perfect world and, and you could snap your finger and, and solve all these things, what would, what would that be like? Wow. Solve just for first responders. First responders. Yeah. First responders. Um, well, first of all, I think I would pay them very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, budgets and, and, you know, there are a lot of volunteers too. Mm-hmm. Um, I would pay them very well. I would make, I would make the, for, at the Academy level, I would train them about their bo- bodies and brains. Mm-hmm. I would have, um, ongoing, just not just training, but, but I mean, things that they could do to process and, and to reconnect with their bodies. Um, even just, you know, games playing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would encourage citizens to try to understand what they really do. I mean, really try to understand it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, what else I would, I would break the stigma 
I would make it okay for you know everybody. I would I think if we could see people, the people who go for help are the strong ones. It's really mm-hmm. true, and uh, yeah, I would I would start there for sure. Wasn't it? Um, uh, what was the show that, w- that he always said? Uh, Mister Rogers always said, you know, look for the helpers. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're in trouble, look for the helpers, and I think the first responders are the helpers. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a lot of, I've trained several departments around the country. And one of the things that I do is I hand out a three by five card and I ask them, why did you first get into this, this line of work? And, and I ask them a couple of the questions, but every single one, every single one has said, because I want to help people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's what you're doing as well. You're helping people. And I want to say thank you for that. It's not easy, I'm sure. So do you do you see a therapist for the stuff that you hear and, and see and experience? I haven't for a while, but I do. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I, you know, or a coach. I mean, I have a lot of coach and therapist friends and I mm-hmm. have people I call. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I think I think I wish people could see therapy as just an investment in yourself and could go before, you know, things get really, really bad. But mm-hmm. most people go before, you know, once things get really, really bad, but. Right. And then it's yeah. so much harder to get back to, to a good place. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes life just throws you something so hard that you're just not going to stay, you know, you, you just going to have to go down and come back up. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, and the good thing is there's, there's always helpers who are willing to help Hopefully, you back up. I mean, it would be, it would be nice. I, I, uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, I know things, some things have to change. I mean, I absolutely mm-hmm. think some things have to change sure. and, and we have to look carefully and, and honestly at the history of our country and, you know, um, but I also feel like it's, it's a bigger, more complicated picture. Um, and, I, I don't think that every single first responder is is responsible for that. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's just complex. It just really is. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show tonight. Thank you so much for your insight, for your wisdom, and for your knowledge on on the trauma that first responders face. Thank you for uh, for sharing. Certainly, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if someone wants to reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, so you can go to Lori at the hood group, LLC.com. You can also go to Lori hood, Um, there are lots of different ways to reach me. Um, there are forms there. Um, the hood group has a form. You can, you can find me on TikTok. So at Lori hood, PhD is my handle across all social media. You can find me on all of it pretty much. So very good. Well, thank you for joining us tonight and stick around and we'll we'll wrap up uh, offline here. And for those of you who are are joining us tonight, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of PTSD 911 Presents for for the comments. Thank you for sharing and look forward to bringing you another program next month. I'm talking to some folks about that. uh, So be in kind of watch your emails for uh, upcoming events and uh, we'll bring you another interesting program here on PTSD 911 Presents. We hope that you have a great evening, a great week, and uh, be well. And we'll talk to you again next time.